Hello, I'm Rachel Richards and you're listening to Teenagers Untangled, the audio hub for parents going through the teenage years. Now, if you listen regularly to this podcast, you'll be expecting me and Susie to talk about my latest research. But this time, I thought you might like something a little different. As parents, we all worry about what our kids are doing online. So when I received a book called Clicks, How to Be Your Best Self Online, which is aimed at teenagers... I was intrigued. It's written by Natasha Devon, MBE, who is an ambassador for the charity Glitch, which promotes digital citizenship. And she's also a patron for No Panic, an organisation helping people manage anxiety. Whilst I was reading it, I realised it could be used by us parents too. So I invited Natasha onto the show and began by asking her what gave her the idea for the book. Well, the idea for the book came because I visit an average of three schools or colleges every week, mainly here in the UK, but sometimes I get invited to other countries as well. And when I'm in those schools and colleges, I deliver talks, but I also do focus groups with teenagers. And the feedback that I was getting during those focus groups is that the education around social media was far too demonising talking about how they shouldn't go on it or they should try and limit their time spent with technology. And I'm not saying that that's not a a good consideration to have, how much time am I spending with technology? But what they were looking for was some really kind of granular advice on how to navigate the online world. So um, I thought that I would be able to write a book about that. Firstly, because as I say right at the beginning, I'm kind of old enough that I remember the world before, but young enough that when social media in its current form came along, I found it really exciting and I embraced it. And I'm still quite positive about technology generally. Mm. And also because I have access to some of the world's leading experts in this area who I interview in the book, the the Centre for Countering Digital Hate, Mariana Spring, Glitch, uh, who I'm an ambassador for, a a charity working in this area. So I thought I'd be a good person to kind of compile all of that information. Yeah, really good point. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. A lot of the parents I talk to, they're very fearful. They're either very fearful or they just say, well, they'll have to learn, won't they? They'll have to work it out for themselves. And I think neither is really the right approach that we have to be. I think we have to be quite conscious about what we say to our teenagers about what life online is and should be like. Mm. Um, And what I loved about your book is, first of all, that it's very quick and easy to read. I read the whole book um, quite rapidly and also laid out in a way that for people who've got poor attention span can can engage (laughs) with. And I, I don't think it's for boys. I don't think a boy would ever read this because partly to do with just the way that it's presented as a book. Um, my 16 year old looked at it and said, mm, my 15, 14, 15 year old said, oh, that looks interesting. So it's very interesting to get um, an instant response about what they might think about it. Mm. Um, what are your thoughts about the, the the sort of readership? That's interesting. I didn't write it with any particular gender in mind. I suppose not only am I a woman, but also the the evidence consistently shows in terms of young people's social media experiences, girls are more likely to have their self-esteem negatively impacted um, and just be targeted by trolls and cyber bullies and, and have their voices essentially bullied out of the the online experience. When it comes to things like radicalization and, and polarizing of opinions, which I also cover in the book, 
boys and and young men are actually more vulnerable to that. So I, I did have everyone in mind when I wrote it. I suppose part of it comes down to the fact that girls are just more likely to read books generally. What you've done, which is really great, is at the end of the book, because I, I read all of it and I was making notes as I went along. And then at the end of it, you've got tips and tricks and you've got each section uh, broken down so that if you're a parent, I thought one thing that they could do is take this book, look at the, well, read it. Um, and for boys who may not be inclined to to read a book like this, use those tips and tricks as your sort of headlines. What do I talk to my kids about? What do I cover? Possibly even before you actually give them access. But I think most for most of us, I mean, you described it as a, a frog in water and mm. um, slowly heating up. You know, most of us, our kids get access to online and then we start thinking, oh, wait, uh, I, so what do they know and what should we be talking about? So, yeah. um, you know, it, there's no really right time or wrong time to sit down and have these conversations, is there? I don't think for parents it's ever too early or too late, actually, mm -hmm. that even if your child is really young, you can still be introducing the critical thinking skills and teaching them about how not everybody is who they say they are and and disseminating information and spotting fake news. You know, these are hugely transferable skills that you can introduce really, really early on. Yes, I love that because having I went to journalism college and I did a postgrad. One of the <laughs> things that I had to spend a lot of time on was looking at sources, checking mm. the veracity of what they were saying. And, um, you know, if it was a trusted source, you could go with that and one other source. But if it wasn't necessarily a trusted source, you'd need to look for at least two or three um, versions of the same information before you started sharing it. Now, you talk about sharing information and fake news. Can you talk a bit more about how, 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 you know, why would somebody post fake news? It's interesting. I spoke to Mariana Spring about this and she said something which I genuinely hadn't considered, which is that some people share fake news knowing that it's fake, but just because they think it's funny or entertaining. But what they don't consider is that there may be people in their following or who eventually see that post who don't understand that it's fake and take it at face value. I think it's partly that. And I think it's partly the fact that we tend to be less voracious in in checking things when it fits with our internal bias mm -hmm. yes. so when something um chimes with what we already believe we're very quick to go see look here and then when something challenges our internal beliefs we're more likely to to dismiss it so the kinds of, of things that you're talking about one of the things that i recommend in the book is normally in an online article or under a youtube video if they've shared a study there is a link to that study just take a look at it just have a look, yes. see who did the yeah. study, see how many people were involved, you know, that kind of thing. Yes, I do that in my podcast. I mean, whenever I talk, because I spend a lot of time looking at what, what the experts say, and I always post the links in my podcast so people can go and, and find the original information to check whether what I'm saying makes sense and whether they agree with, uh, you know, the people I've used as sources. So it's very important. And I think a lot of, I think the hard thing for teenagers is knowing, I mean, we've grown up in an environment, I've grown up in an environment where, I wasn't online originally and everything was in a textbook oh. and being able to filter what's online for who you can trust and believe can be extremely difficult for this yeah. generation. 
I think so. I, one of the things that I do, I, there's a class that I, I do all about social media and self-esteem. And um, normally I've got a whole year group in front of me and I say, raise your hand if you live in a house with an even number on the door. Yeah, if, you're, if your address starts with an even number, raise your hand. And about half of them raise their hand because that's how numbers work. And then I say, statistically, the people with their hands raised are more likely to do well in their GCSEs. That's to get them to understand that causation and correlation are not the same thing. <laughs> Obviously, we don't advocate that people move <laughs> in order to do better in their GCSEs, but it's just getting them to understand the nature of, of data. So even if it is coming from someone that they really like and trust, they have the ability to go, oh, but is that just because one would always do better than the other kind of thing? Right. So pause before you actually agree with something. Um, yeah. And one of the other areas that I thought was particularly interesting was avoiding tech addiction. Now, I think a lot you, you mentioned that right at the start. A lot of parents are very scared of two things. One of them is the extent to which they find their kids are online. And I did a, an episode on that. You know, how do you if your kids are on the screens an awful lot, that it's not just the fact they're on the screen. It's what are they actually doing when they're on the screen? And the other thing that really scares parents is uh, who they're talking to. Huh. So let's start yeah. with, you know, the, the, the whole addictive nature of online. And, and you, you actually um, explain it quite well in the book about what what are companies, what, what, what is the currency now in, in online, you know, online viewers? So the, because we live in the attention economy, Technology is essentially always trying to steal our time because the more time we spend interacting with technology, the more of our data it can harvest. And, and that could be as simple as the algorithm measuring what we're looking at, how long we're looking at it, what we're most likely to click on. All of that is giving the algorithm a better understanding of what we're likely to respond to. And that is worth an awful lot of money to anybody who has a vested interest in manipulating people or selling them something online. So it, within that interaction, we are the thing that's being sold. So social media isn't actually free because we're being sold and, and it's between the, the apps and the, the people who are paying the apps or the brands that are paying the apps to get your head around it, it is if you want more information on it there is a brilliant netflix documentary called the social dilemma which um talks about it in a in a lot more detail and i i think is really good family viewing actually if you if you have teenagers you know sit down and all watch it together it's a good kind of discussion springboard but the, the problem then becomes that these activities, which are supposed to be relaxing and things we do in our leisure time, like gaming, like scrolling, like watching TikTok videos or reels, they start to become sources of stress because we then no longer have enough time to do everything else that we need to do in our lives. So That's what I've great. actually, yeah, so I've actually applied some of the um, principles of addiction recovery in that part of the book and looked at ways that you can create alerts to go, okay, I've spent quite a lot of time doing this and bring in your conscious decision-making brain so that you're deciding how much time you spend with technology rather than letting your phone decide. I, yes. And I love that. And, and that what you sort of said was the advice was, if I'm going to go online, how much time am I going to allocate to this? that sort of spending your ducks 
Can you yes. explain that concept? Uh, yeah. So when I was talking about um, ducks, it was more about the the outrage economy. And again, I was I was really inspired by a brilliant book called Outraged by Ashley Dotty Charles, which I, I think I reference in in the book, where she talks about how everything's outrageous online, which actually means that nothing is. And it means that when something genuinely outrageous happens, it's treated the same as something that doesn't matter. And so people are getting away with stuff. So she encourages us to see our outrage as currency in the bank and you spend it on the things you really care about. So, you know, yeah. if you're not particularly bothered about something, resist the urge to pile on is, is what she says. Yes. Don't engage. Yeah. Um, and then coming to the other point that really scares parents is this kind of kind of who are my kids accessing an awful lot of what I see as parents saying, you know, what can I use to stop my kids from 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 how can I monitor my kids? What should I be doing? Um, mm. What would be your advice to them? It's really difficult in terms of who they're talking to. That's the most difficult thing to police. I would say the most useful thing that a parent can do is approach all of these conversations about technology with a genuine curiosity of, oh, you know, show, show me how the app works or why, why do you like it? Oh, oh, that's interesting. Because what you're doing then is you're building trust that they're not going to get in trouble if they disclose to you, I've been chatting to this person and they said this, that you're, that you create then a kind of sounding board and they know that they can come to you with that stuff because there's some really interesting um, research that came from ChildNet that showed that teenagers' greatest fear is having their technology taken away from them as punishment. They will oh, do anything to avoid that. Yeah. So they quite often were avoiding talking to their parents if they suspected they were being groomed uh, radicalized, if they were being sent inappropriate material, if they were being encouraged to send inappropriate material, they would rather try and deal with that by themselves than ask for an adult's help because they didn't want their technology taken away. That's, that's so interesting. I mean, this is, we talk about this all the time on the podcast that our job as a parent of a teenager is not to dictate what they should do. It's, it's like kind of be an ally and a coach and someone who they can talk to about any of these things so that you've got some, some open space. But that's, you see, the consequence of taking away the phone or taking away someone's Wi-Fi is used a lot. And that's mm. a, so that's a very interesting point you're making there and, and really important. Um, so one of the things I wanted to ask you was why are you, because you, you're really positive about social media. Well, reasonably positive, but enthusiastic is yeah. the word you use. So yeah. why? What, why? Why should we, you know, as a parent, what sh what, why should we be excited and happy about it? Do you know what I think it is? I, I'm a pragmatic person. So I, I often resist the idea to uh, the, the notion of speaking in ideals, because I think that keeps us trapped where we are. And my starting point is social media is here and it's not going anywhere. We're not getting that genie back in the bottle. So how can we turn this into a positive experience for young people? And I find so many of the conversations that I have with people my age and older, you mentioned social media and their first port of call is, oh, thank God it didn't exist when I was a teenager. I'd hate to be a teenager now. I wish we could go back to before it exists. Fine, you know, have that philosophical discussion, but that's not useful <laughs> to, to the teenagers that exist now. 
um, so I, I, I would rather focus on, on the positives and what you can get out of it. And, and what people find online is community, like-minded people, role models, information. You know, that's why technology was created. It was, it was created to serve humanity. And I think sometimes we forget that. I think that's absolutely right. And I personally have found that I've managed to connect with people that I never would have had the chance to to meet or actually didn't understand that that was something that interested me. And I can also find points of view that differ from mine just by actively searching for them. And that's something you talk about where these slipstreams get created, uh, where it's quite easy because of the way the algorithms work to find that you end up in a kind of echo chamber of people who think the same way as you. And then you think everybody thinks that same way. Yes. And what's interesting about the slipstream is you will see opposing points of view, but it will be the most extreme or ridiculous examples of the quote unquote other side. So it exists to convince you that everybody thinks the same way as you, apart from the ridiculous people who should be laughed at and mocked. What you'll never see is the reasonable people who have a slightly different view from you. So I encourage young people to think of it as like a maths problem. If you can see someone's workings, but you just don't agree with their solution, then they're a good person to to engage with online because yes. they're going to challenge yeah. your, your thinking. Yeah. And um, But why does that happen? Because that's the thing that's confusing is that, yes, I can I can understand that we'd end up in this sort of, you know, slipstream. But how how is it that the, the algorithms get us there? What's going on? Well, because they're trying to keep us online as much as possible and we're much more likely to engage with either people who agree with us or people who make us really angry. And wow. if somebody just makes you go, hmm. You're not really going to engage with that, are you? And that's and, and another thing I talk about in the book is that w- what you hear. So if you put a piece of content out online, if there were a hundred people in the world, ninety of the people would watch it and go or see it and go, hmm, and then get on with their day. And then the ten people you hear from are the ten people who either loved it or you made them angry. So your impression of the response that you're getting is not actually accurate. Yes, yes, that's fascinating. And I can see I can absolutely see that. And if you were um I think you mentioned that if you were trolled and trolling, perhaps you can explain what that is. And um I suppose for a younger teenager, this might end up happening if they'd made a remark or something and then people started the word would be piling on the, the phrase. Mm. So what what what's your advice? What's trolling and what should somebody do about that? So trolling is when you um, send somebody abusive or negative feedback just to try and get attention. That's what that's what trolling is. And the, the official advice is don't feed the trolls. That's very difficult to do because we have inbuilt, inbuilt negativity bias, which means that, and you see celebrities do this, they will get a thousand comments underneath a, an Instagram post saying, you're amazing. And then the one that says like, you've got a bit thin, that that's the one that they will respond to. So, so people very quickly learn that's the quickest way for me to get attention and traction with this. And some people get off on that. Um, a pylon is a slightly different thing. That's when people see that somebody is being targeted for a perceived transgression and then they join in. And my advice, if you find yourself at the center of a pylon is if you possibly can, don't respond for at least the first 24 hours. 
while you're feeling really emotional and it's horrible being at the center of a pylon and it's very difficult not to look even if you are, you are just, looking just switch off just don't look try try it's really hard but even if you are looking try not to engage with anything because ultimately what you want to be able to do is say is there any validity in this do they have a point if they do have a point do a proper apology <laughs> not uh i'm sorry mm. if but you know a genuine if i could have my time again i wouldn't have done this apology if they don't have a point that's when you've got to start blocking and muting people right Right. And how do you do that? Because you said there's block, but I think he was talking about, you were saying that there's this amazing facility where you can just mute people. And that yeah. means that it's kind of a low grade option of just ensuring that you have a positive experience online. Yeah. So it, there is a mute button and on, on Instagram, there is a restrict button. So you restrict how much you see an account on Twitter. It's mute on TikTok. It's I'm not interested in this. If you, if you click that, that person pretty much disappears from your feed, but they don't know that that's happened. A block is in a way, it, it's quite an aggressive move if it's someone that you know. And if it's someone that you don't know, it's letting them know that you've, they've had an effect on you. Yes, they've upset you. Mm. Yeah. To mute, I think, is always a better option. Interesting. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier on that for girls, the online experience can be quite quite difficult because there's an awful lot of information about the way we're supposed to look and the way we're supposed to think about ourselves um and i've seen i've seen my because i've got two bonus daughters one's now 28 the other one's 25 and i've seen them go through this because of course the 28 year old didn't have the same experience of being online as the 25 year old because it happened as they were growing up and so their relationship with online is is different. And I think mm. the 25-year-old is more comfortable with how she works online. If you were to advise a young girl who was just starting to, you know, I think the, the crux, the kind of difficult age is 11 to 13, 14, yeah. really hard on girls. What would you be saying parents could say to their daughters about being online and, and how they should feel about themselves? So the, the number one, uh, the most important thing is diversity, by which I don't mean, because I, I found recently that when people say diverse, they mean a specific thing. Like it's, somebody was saying, we need a diverse person the other day. And I went, what? <laughs> and, and it, and it turned out they meant, they meant a black person. And I was like, well, you need to say a black person then, because, because diversity doesn't exist without a, a a kind of set, so you're kind of centering whiteness. But anyway, so what I mean by diversity is lots of different people who look different from each other. Regardless of how you look, you should be following a really wide range of, of shapes and sizes and, and races and ages and abilities. That has been proven to have a, a positive impact on people's body image because the, the message that I give when I'm talking to, uh, to young girls and, and teenagers about body image is there is nothing inherently wrong with, for example, wanting to wear makeup or wanting to do something interesting with your hair or having an interest in fashion. But these things are supposed to be joyful. They're supposed to be there yes. for creativity and self-expression. It's not what you do, but why you do it that is important. You can't win. Know that you can never win because if you, yes. in the vanishingly 
small, um, you know, chance that you happen to naturally match society's beauty paradigms, everyone will think you're stupid or a bitch. You know, I, I have a, a friend who looks like Margot Robbie, who actually had to have therapy because of how she's been treated, because she is so naturally beautiful and um, how people have treated her. If you, um, make an effort with your appearance, you'll be told you're trying too hard. If you don't make an effort with your appearance, you'll be told that you're, you're slovenly. Um, if you know, whatever you do, you'll be too fat, too thin, too young, too old, too dark, too light, like whatever you do, you won't win. So don't think like that guy, you can the win. Who, the guy who commented on you wearing trainers on, on, uh, on <laughs> yeah. You said, hey, they, they make it easier to run away from people like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, just do you. Like, if you think you look good, that's the only person's opinion that matters. Mm. And, and that's where I think we should be with it, because we've been encouraged to judge other women and girls for their appearance so much. Yeah. Um, and that's a way, I think, of keeping us divided and keeping us weak. It's not the individual's choices that are the important thing. It's whether so they think they to, look good. Coming back to your point about sort of diversity, um, yeah. because I think you made a point in the book about how when uh, we see a lot of different body types and shapes, it can make us feel so much better about ourselves. Yes, because then the message becomes, look, there are tons of ways to be a person <laughs> and to be gorgeous. Um, and bodies comes in, it come in lots of different ways. And that's such an important lesson for them to learn. You know, it, that I, I did, um, a, a TV program a couple of years ago called Naked Beach. And that was based on a piece of research that was done by Professor Keon West at Goldsmiths University that found that if you spend time around a diverse range of naked people. So if you went to a nudist beach, for example, for a week, it would improve your body image because you wouldn't just be seeing one body type constantly, you know. And that's the problem because I, when I look at things like Instagram, I'm not on TikTok, but when I look at Instagram, there's an Instagram look. And yeah. I'm always saying to my girls, come offline, look around you when you go to the supermarket, how many people actually look like the people you're seeing online. And that's the reality that I'm trying to sort of push a bit more <laughs> it's hard yeah. online and it's mm. boring it's boring when everyone looks the same I completely agree um <laughs> now also the other thing that uh I think you, we mentioned boys and I think one of the thing I did a um an episode on the manosphere uh and it was prompted by a mother who contacted me and said I've got three sons they seem two of them seem really enamored with Andrew Tate I just don't know what to do about this mm. and so I did a, an entire kind of research about all of it rather than just him because I don't I think I think what he's doing is he's using dog whistle words that that flag up things that people like but you know his real followers is young boys um to, to them he's what looks successful and yeah. I don't you know what would you say so so if parents have got sons who are kind of going down that path or how would you advise them to help their sons find good role models that aren't necessarily, you know, because I don't think masculine mm. equates to being, you know, a rapist. You know, they, these things are different. You don't have to be like that. I completely agree. Um, so I, there are some great male role models out there who are 
actively questioning the kinds of ideologies that are put forward by people like Andrew Tate. So, uh, for example, um, there's a guy called the Young Imam. Um, he's called Sabah. And he talks about, so you know how Andrew Tate claims that it, what a lot of what he talks about is uh, Islam. And this guy's like, no, no. If you look at what the Quran actually says, it says you're not allowed to tell women what to wear and you shouldn't judge other people. And he, he's kind of really from an academic point of view saying, you know, that's, um, there's a, another guy called Alex Holmes who talks all about mental health and being able to express emotion and vulnerability as a man and what that looks like and, and how society responds to that. Um, there's another guy who I love called Dan Richards. He's called the one armed wonder. He's a disability advocate. Um, for slightly older men, there's, there's a guy called Sam Delaney who, um, also talks about mental health, but in a real kind of, I'm a bloke. I'm a normal bloke. I like football and I want to talk about mental health um, type way. And these, these I think are the solution because you or I could talk about Andrew Tate until we're blue in the face. And I don't think it's going to make any difference. I think it does need to be men who are leading the charge. Yes. And I think the general message is about questioning what you're actually seeing when you're online, because I think quite often we go. So, so, you know, you mentioned, um, sort of monitoring your time like how much how much time am I going to spend online and my uh 16 year old turned to me the other day and said you know what's weird is I would never allocate 45 minutes of my time in the middle of the day to watch one of my favorite programs and yet I'll pull up Instagram and suddenly find 45 minutes later that I've just lost an entire chunk of my life and so I think coming back to this whole question about online and being conscious about it you know if you're going to tell parents that you know any top tips what would be you know to, finally what would you say to a parent to to try and get their kids to be more conscious about their time so um you know how we do dry january or a lot of people do dry january and it, it it's become this thing of oh oh i'm sort of compensate it's a compensatory behavior for christmas which i think is really unfortunate because <laughs> I think the original idea was to just make you aware of how much you were drinking before. And the same principle applies. If you can, even for just three days, say, I'm not going to go on Instagram, then you will very quickly become aware of how much time you have. Um, you know, even if, and, and, to make sure that that time is filled with something. Cause if you're bored, you're going to go online. So is there mm-hmm. a book, a physical book that you can carry around with you that every time you want to go online, you, you defer to that instead, or can you go for a walk around the block or yeah, you know, what other activity are you going to put in there? That's going to stop you from reaching for your phone and just see, and there's without judgment, just see how's my life different. And do I need more of a balance? The other thing I think is teaching them self-regulation. So the section where I talk about alerts, they're setting the alerts. And I think that that's more effective than parents sticking their head around the bedroom door and going, what are you doing? <laughs> is that homework? Yes. Or, you know, <laughs> and so, you know, getting them to kind of take, lead the charge on that, I think is, is better. And I did love your point, um, which we talked about in the sleep episode, that and, and actually comes up all the time, which is that our kids aren't 
really listening to us as much as we'd hope they're watching us and so if we are constantly on our phones unable to put them down unable to come offline saying things online that possibly aren't uh, respectful then what you're just teaching your kid you can't get them to do something different from what we're doing so it's about we've got to kind of understand them meet them where they are Mm. and and have a conversation I guess yeah and and role model the behavior that you want to see Mm. as well there's a whole generation of parents now who are addicted to technology themselves and so I would always say to say to them sort your own relationship with technology first and then turn your attention yeah put your own mask on first oh you see we parents hate that we don't we don't want to hear that (laughs) Every single one of our episodes is basically, well, you know, you've got to look at yourself first if you think you <laughs> yeah. have to fix something. Anyway, Natasha, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Um, I think it's a really good book. I genuinely uh, really enjoyed it, much more than I thought I was going to, if I'm honest. Oh, and you. it's a very quick read. And it's a good one that you can then use to create a sort of background for talking to your teenagers. So, yes, well done. Great book. Thank you very much. That was Natasha Devon talking about her book, Clicks, How to Be Your Best Self Online. Did you find that useful? Do drop us a line and let us know if you'd like more interviews like that. Hit subscribe and you'll never miss one. In our next episode, I talk with Susie about what we can do as parents if our teenagers start being, should we call it delinquent? And the one proven thing that makes the difference. Bye bye for now. (laughs) 